Revelation 12. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, today let's consider war in heaven. War in heaven. Father, we ask this morning as we look again into your word that we would be strengthened by this doctrine that we will find here, by this sure truth that we read. And may it be something that causes us to rejoice and to have more and more confidence that we ought to have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Professor Mariotti and Sherlock Holmes. Iago and Othello. The White Witch and Aslan the Lion. Lord Voldemort and Harry Potter. Captain Hook and Peter Pan, Sauron and Frodo Baggins, Shere Khan, Mowgli, the Man Club. And each of these pairs represents a hero and a villain. And to some degree, they mirror the ultimate hero villain pair that is Satan and God. Now, I'm going to repeat what I said a few weeks ago. Satan and God are opposed to each other, but they are not opposites. Satan was created by God, and God is uncreated. So these are completely different beings. God is infinitely greater than Satan. And we would say that Satan's more appropriate opposite would be someone like the angel Michael. But that said, the ultimate epic is the battle between God and Satan. And that epic is revealed to us in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent tempts Eve. And it, res- it is resolved definitively in the last book of our Bible. Now, since we've been studying the book of Revelation, up until this chapter, this book has mostly focused on Jesus Christ. He is the one who is exercising his authority over his churches, Revelation 1 through 3. And he is the one who is initiating judgment upon the world in submission to his Father's will. That's what we find in this current section, chapters 6 through 16. So Satan, he is Christ's opponent, but he has had very minimal coverage to this point in our book. But he has had some coverage. There's been a handful of references to Satan in the letters. When we get to chapter 12, we find that Satan is set forth as the great antagonist to Christ. If you read through this chapter, it is Satan who gets the most press. And it's really important for us to recognize that because this is the greatest conflict of all time. And given the context of what we're studying in this book, where we find that in the days of the seventh trumpet, all is going to be brought to a resolution, we need to know about the conflict. If it's going to be a meaningful resolution, we need to know about this conflict that has been raging for the ages. So we've seen the dragon, which is a symbol of fierce, powerful, deadly, his character as Satan. What we saw a couple weeks ago when we studied the beginning of chapter 12, we saw how Satan failed to destroy the Christ child. Therefore, he 
failed to thwart God's promise through the Messiah. As you look at the end of chapter 11, we're reminded that the focus is upon the Ark of the Covenant, which is seen in the temple in heaven. And what that does is remind us of the fact that this fixture points to the people of Israel, and God has made promises to those people. The Ark of the Covenant is not a fixture in the church today. That is something of the Old Testament. The point here, then, is that Revelation 12 is pointing to the fact that Satan has been attempting to undermine God's promises. This chapter splits up into three sections quite nicely. The first six verses talk about uh, the great signs in heaven. The second section, verses 7 through 12, talk about the war in heaven. And the remaining verses talk about the pursuit on earth. What we studied before in the chapter was that the woman in travail points to the origin of the Christ child. And the great dragon in waiting points to the opponent to that Christ child. And then the child in hand points to the oversight of that child. Again, what we found is that Satan was not able to thwart God's plan. So from the sign in heaven, which we find in verse 1, we move to the war in heaven in verse 7. Next week, Lord willing, we'll consider the pursuit on earth. But as we get into this war in heaven, one of the great questions that many people raise as they go through this portion is, when does this event take place? Does this event take place before the fall of mankind given to us in the book of Genesis? Or does it take place during Christ's ministry or at his crucifixion or at his ascension? Or is it yet future? Now, I would say knowing when isn't actually the key to understanding this passage. But as we go through the details of this passage, we'll find perhaps when this will take place. Regardless of past or future, it is true doctrine that we ought to believe and hold to. So what we need to do is focus on what this text repeats, because one of the ways that a writer helps us understand what the point of a text is, is by repeating his point again and again. And there's a word in this chapter that's repeated eight times. And four times it's repeated in our passage this morning, verses 7 through 12. And then it's used to summarize our section in verse 13. So look down at verse 13, Roman, uh, Revelation 12, 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, that's the summary statement. The dragon was cast out of heaven and down to the earth. That's the significant event of our text this morning in verses 7 through 12. He is thrown down. And as we study this together, we'll first see why he was thrown down. Look at verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. And it's the war in heaven that leads to the dragon's expulsion. Let's look on in verse 7 and notice the rival forces that are in heaven. War broke out in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Now, don't you wonder, why is the dragon in heaven? 
why is Satan in heaven? The assumption would be that when Satan turned on God, he was no longer allowed in heaven. But when we think back to the story of Job, we know that Satan was allowed to be in God's presence. For reasons that God knows, and perhaps we don't know. But the opposing forces were very simply Michael and his company and the dragon and his company. And the point that we might miss is these rival forces that were opposing were also uneven forces. Think back about what you know about the angels. Both, all, the, all those who are com- involved in this war are angels, but Satan is a created angel who is superior to the rest. We've already read in the book of Jude that Michael and Satan contend over the body of Moses. And when you look at what it says that Michael did, Michael didn't dare pronounce judgment against the devil. Michael's tentative, that is to show us that he respects Satan's great power. But for some reason, these opposing uneven forces are at war in heaven. And we need to notice next that this was a real fight. Look at verse 7. And the dragon and his angels fought back. You know, some wars are resolved through surrender. We think of the war between the states, the civil war. That was ended in surrender, where one side gives in. It's the kind of thing where you lose the game of chess to your five-year-old daughter. You could have won, but you chose not to win. You chose to surrender. You let them win when you could have won easily. But that's not the case here. Satan doesn't bow out. He fights back. But the result of that is in verse 8. It says, but he was defeated. That is to say, he didn't willingly leave heaven, and he doesn't temporarily leave heaven. It goes on to say in verse 8, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So the defeat of the dragon was by God's angels. That's what we see in verses 7 and 8. The victors were God's angels, and the means of this victory, although we don't have it stated for us plainly, it must have been God. Because how could Michael, a lesser angel, conquer Satan, a greater angel? It must have been that God energized his angels to defeat them. And, of course, God can do that. The defeat of Satan then led to the descent of Satan. Look at verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, and his angels with him. So here the descent of the dragon is with his angels. This is the focus of the text. This is the significant event. But as we read through verse 9, we notice that Satan is being mocked here. I read for you just the beginning and the end of the verse, which sandwich a long description of the dragon. Let's consider this for a moment. How is Satan described? First says, a great dragon. A dragon is a fierce, destructive beast. Some of you literary folks may appreciate Tolkien's The Hobbit. And remember that Gandalf said, it does not Leave, it does not do to leave a live dragon out of your calculations if you live near him. Dragons are not pets, they're not friends. Dragons are foes, they're dangerous. 
That's the character of Satan. It goes on to say he is the ancient serpent. That links him all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where he tempted man to doubt and disobey God's word. And just think about that. He has been at it all the way back to the garden. That's a long time. We've only been at it for a few decades. He's been at it since then. He's old now, but he is not infirm. He's also called the devil. That's a title, not a name, but the devil refers to the fact that he is a slanderer. He's an accuser, and he does this in a number of ways, and let me draw these out for you. He is a slanderer in the fact that he slanders God to man. Think back to what happened to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Satan said to the woman, did God actually say... He made lies about God and told them to man. So today, he slanders God to man. And perhaps here's some examples of what that might mean. Some examples of what you've heard, how this goes on. People say, if God cared, you wouldn't have the problems you have. Or they'd say, how could God do this to you after you've served him so long? Or they'd say, if God is all-powerful, why does he allow suffering and death? All of these things Satan is using so that we would think less and less of our infinitely great and good God. Satan slanders God to man. Secondly, Satan slanders man to God. This is the case when we read the story of Job. You remember that God calls those there. Satan comes before the Lord. God questions Satan. And Satan charges Job with serving God out of self-interest. He's saying Job's religious just so that he can be blessed. He's not an upstanding person. He's just doing it for what he can get out of it. And so today, Satan slanders us to God. Just imagine what it could be like in heaven. Imagine the Lord saying something like this. Lord, you know that preacher says one thing and does the opposite. What a hypocrite. Lord, that husband, although he has a a ring on his finger, he clicks away on his computer. Lord, that wife, she says she's raising her children for the Lord, but she screams at him most of the day. Those children who are tenderhearted, they're not so tender when they fight with their siblings. Lord, all those folks... They can't resist my slightest temptations. I just dangle them before them, and they fall flat. So it is. Those are your servants, Lord. And so what you see is that Satan slanders people, God's people, to God. Lastly, I'll make the point that Satan slanders God. He slanders God to man, he slanders man to God, and he slanders God. And that's the case also in in the story of Job. Remember, when you make a jab at Job, there is also a jab being made at God. Satan is asserting to God that he only has a follower in Job because God has blessed him. God hadn't blessed him, that follower would curse you. Like Satan is basically saying, you're really not that great. You had to buy your following. Or you say that Jesus saves people from their sin, 
but they all still give in to the temptation to sin when I tempt them. So what kind of salvation are you talking about, God? Or he would say, you say that they're your children, but they definitely look like my wicked offspring. Are you actually sure that they're yours? Or Satan might say, why would an all-wise God pick such losers? You see, Satan is someone who slanders. Goes on to describe him as Satan, which means adversary. Satan is actually a Hebrew term, and it refers to an evil opponent. What we learn from that is he is not for you. He is not for your good. We remember that Satan tricked Eve into thinking that if she ate the fruit, she would become wise, things would become better. He tricks her. He made her think that he was trying to be helpful when he was actually succeeding in hurting mankind. He is the adversary. And the last description we find is that he is the deceiver of the whole world. Just think for a moment. All but the God-man have been deceived by him. No one can argue with the fact that that is very influential. I mean, who else or what other philosophy has been as successful as Satan in deceiving the world? He has led mankind away from God. It was Eve who said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And we could have the same kind of testimony from day to day when we fall. We could say, as Eve said, I was deceived, so I could fill in the blank. Satan is a formidable foe. And what we find in the middle of verse 9 is a lengthy list of names showing a long career of almost unequaled impact. Yet, as was true with the great Muhammad Ali, who said, I am the greatest, Satan was thrown down. And all of his accolades now are used as a resume of ridicule against him. Let's read it again. Verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. See, brothers and sisters in the Lord, there are some verses that you ought to read out loud and really enjoy reading. This is a passage where you ought to enjoy it, because our great foe is defeated. This one is thrown down at the hands of Michael and company. God uses his angels as his instruments to expel Satan from heaven and throw him down to the earth. But why is this great victory, why is it such a great victory for Satan to be thrown to the earth? I mean, he's still alive. So why is it so wonderful that he's thrown out of heaven? Well, as we go on to the next portion of the passage, we'll see what Satan has been doing before he was thrown down. Because what we'll find in verses 10 through 12 is singing in heaven. This section is dialogue. It's not relating a story to us. It's singing about what has just happened. So look at verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying. So our second point this morning is that the voice in heaven lauds 
the dragon's expulsion, verses 10 through 12. And there are two reasons that are given to us of why these folks are singing of kingdom come. The first is that heaven sings, the accuser is expelled. And this expulsion is showing us the arrival of the kingdom of God. Verse 10 says, now, now, the salvation or the victory and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. This is talking about arrival. This is like what we found in chapter uh, 10, where it talked about the kingdom of God being fulfilled during the days of the seventh trumpet. So now again, we're hearing it sung. Now's the time. God's kingdom. So how does God's kingdom relate to the throwing down of Satan? Well, the point is, Satan, the the accuser, was cast down. This is where we learn what Satan had been doing when he was allowed access in heaven. Verse 11 shows us that he has been about the terrible business of accusing our brothers. This seems to show us that the song that is taking place in heaven is sung by the saints in heaven who talk about our God and our brothers. And this shows us, as well as the timing of these of the first passage in chapter 12 and now this passage, the, the chronology of that, that this is taking place after Christ's ascension, and perhaps yet then future even related to us because it's the saints in heaven who are singing this. I must say that there are commentators who don't want to throw this event forward. They want to throw it backward. They want to throw it back to the ascension, throw it back to the cross, or perhaps throw it back to the preaching ministry of Jesus Christ. You remember in Luke chapter 10, that when his disciples had gone out and preached, they came back, and Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. But when you compare the passages, the timing is different. The people involved are different. The vocabulary is different. The location of the warfare is different. And the results of the warfare are different. It's different when it talks about it in the Gospels than when it talks about it in the book of Revelation. Therefore, the reason I talk about this event being yet future is because I'm choosing to rely on the closer biblical context. I could take something from the Gospels and import the meaning to Revelation, or I could choose to stay in the book of Revelation, its own context, and use that. That's what I'm choosing to do. I'm choosing to try to take passages that have more detail and that are clearer, use those as my guide instead of less clear passages. So that's why I get that. But regardless the timing of this event, what we need to know for sure is that Satan will one day no longer have access to heaven in order to accuse us. And that is because God empowers Michael and company to defeat him. That's the truth. Now, It would seem, then, that today Satan is able to accuse us to God. And what that means is he's the one who prosecutes us. Today, when a person commits a crime, a prosecutor brings a case against them before the court. And even so, 
when God's people sin, Satan brings a case to God against them. He brings a case against our brothers. And when we reflect on that, Satan definitely can make a case against us. Satan is able to land punches. He can say to God what we have said and what we have done, not what we have thought. He's not omniscient. But he can relate to God what we've done, what we've done wrong. And that's sobering because it's not that he's always lying about us. But what we find in 1 John chapter 2 is that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sin. So what we find then is that there is no guilt that we have. There's nothing that can actually land to our account because Jesus Christ has already taken our punishment for our sin. And here then is the promise that one day God will no longer allow Satan to accuse us. And when you think about that, it's quite fascinating. For years, God has endured Satan's charges. And you might think, why would he allow that in heaven? Well, isn't it so he can be long-suffering towards us, not wishing that any of us would perish, but that we would repent? God has been so good to us. But when Satan is cast down, heaven, heaven therefore sings of kingdom come. The first reason they sing is the accuser is expelled. Let's look at verse 11, and we'll find secondly that heaven sings because the accused have conquered. Verse 11 says, and they, that's our brothers from verse 10, they have conquered him. They've conquered Satan. We already saw that the angels defeated him. Now we read that the saints have overcome him. How do we overcome Satan? Well, we read in the Old Testament that Samson overcame the lion by his strength. So perhaps we overcome Satan by standing toe-to-toe with him. Well, no. Satan is a far more powerful being than any one of us. We can't do that. What we find then is that victory over Satan comes through a different means. Look at verse 11 and notice that the victory comes by the blood of the Lamb. So the saints conquer Satan by Jesus Christ dying in their place. The blood points to the death of the Lamb. You say, well, what does the the death of Christ accomplish. And I just need you to recall with me what the book of Revelation has taught us along these lines. Chapter 1, verse 5. His blood has released us from our sin. Chapter 5. It has purchased us for God. Chapter 7. It has made our garments white. So by the blood, we have freedom from sin, fellowship with God, and flawlessness in person. We've overcome him through what Christ did. Secondly, notice the second, base, the second basis of the saints' victory in, in verse 11. It says, and by the word of their testimony. The word of their testimony. So the saints conquer Satan by their evangelistic confession of Jesus. It is true that the word testimony can refer to what we say and what we do. But the emphasis here is on the verbal witness. It talks about the word of their testimony. And this simply means that they confess Christ. And we remember the promise of Christ where he said, those who confess him before man, he will confess before his father. 
And as we read through the book of Acts, that is stated and it is shown, you will be my witnesses. And that's what Christ desired of the churches of Asia Minor. He highlights Antipas, who is the faithful witness. That's what God wants. You say, well, how faithful do I really need to be? The passage goes on to show us the extent of their faithfulness. Verse 11 ends with, for they love not their lives even unto death. So the saints were willing to forfeit their lives to be faithful to Christ because they valued Christ above their short life. Now, it's obvious that God doesn't call most Christians to be martyred for their faith. Perhaps that's what we would call the most expensive sacrifice that anyone could make. But when he refers to death, God is indicating that all lesser sacrifices ought to be made for us to be faithful witnesses for Christ. Are you willing to do that, or is there hesitation that you have? Because any hesitation we have to this kind of verbal testimony really needs to be resolved. Say, how do we resolve that? We resolve that by rightly understanding the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. We have to decide what we will love. You remember Jim Elliott, the missionary, said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The Apostle Paul said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. At this point, I just say, as a preacher, there are several goals that I have from week to week when I preach. One of them is to make the passage plain for us. But another of my chief goals is to exalt Jesus Christ because what you and I need most on the Lord's day is to see Christ exalted. And as we are washed with that from week to week, we learn to ascribe to him the glory that is due him. We need to see, we need to hear Christ exalted so that we will value him Above all the other things that vie for our attention. Heaven sings of kingdom come, for the Satan has been thrown down and the saints have conquered. And heaven should sing. Look at verse 12. Therefore, given these truths, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But it goes on to say, but woe to you, O earth and sea. You see, heaven sings yet the earth is going to sorrow. Why? Because Satan has come down, and he's mad. And it's his anger that it's going to lead him to pursue and persecute God's people with unparalleled ferocity. That's what we find in the rest of chapter 12 into chapter 13. Satan is mad because he knows that his time is short. You see that through this book, which is telling us how Christ is coming to reclaim the earth in submission to the Father's will, we see that one day he will take the scroll from the Father, he will execute its contents, and as he does so, it's as if the timer 
till the final judgment is ticking down, 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 lower, lower, lower. And as that happens, Satan realizes his time is short. The age-old conflict, the ultimate villain hero conflict is going to be resolved soon. We think of conflict between great literary villains. I kind of like Sherlock Holmes. So I like Sherlock and Mariotti. But for the kids, you think of people like Shere Khan and Mowgli. Those conflicts in the stories get resolved. And the point of the passage here is there is a conflict. There is a great conflict of the ages. And Christ is saying to it that it will be resolved. The unique thing that he is doing here is that he, Satan, is no longer allowed access to heaven to accuse the saints. Satan's power is lessening. His rule is eroding, even as Christ's power is being asserted. And this is the truth of the text. It's the doctrine that you and I must take and believe. It's the doctrine that ought to lead to this kind of application, that you and I will be faithful witnesses for him today, given what he will do one day. Father, we are thankful for this passage. There are very few passages in Scripture that make our adversary um, so plain to us, that describe him so thoroughly. And as we live in an area that seems hated about things of the devil and his demons and who dabble in those things, may we look at this and not do that. May we not dabble with these things. May we rightly think about Satan and his company. And may we rightly understand what will happen to him. May we realize that Christ's kingdom is coming. Every knee will bow to him, so we must bow to him each day today. We pray for the grace to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.